You're listening to the Modern People Leader Podcast. Today's episode will be a part of our People Leader Series, where we go behind the scenes with today's top HR leaders and talk to them about how they've gotten to where they're at and what they really do every day. Our guest today is Sile Magos, co-founder and CEO of MetaView. MPL family, stop what you're doing and take five seconds to go subscribe to the MPL Weekly Digest. Every week, we'll share the top three takeaways from the episode along with the full transcript. Just go to the show notes for this episode and click the link to subscribe. And now, without further ado, enjoy the show. Sile, welcome to the Modern People Leader. How you doing? Thanks so much, Mammy. Yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, uh, how you do right there? Doing all right. Um, not as not as good as Steven. He's 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 in LA right now on vacation. I'm a little bit jealous, but uh my week's starting pretty pretty well. My week's good. I've survived my my a fir- my first trip to Disneyland. It was like a full day, eight thirty AM to midnight, and my oh, wow. daughters are thirteen and eleven. So yeah. they're like older, but that's still yeah. that's a lot. And so we, we did a- survived. We did a trip to um, like a, a child-friendly or like child-focused kids park in Italy, Lake Garda, a few weeks ago. And my kids are a lot longer, younger than yours. And I feel like I'm still recovering, really. Just like it's like the, <laughs> the opposite of a holiday, you know. Yeah, you need a vacation from that vacation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Vacation from the vacation. Well, let's let's get into good news stories. So every episode, we start with a good news story, and we share a personal or work-related story from the past week or two. Who wants to kick us off today? I can so, go. Seems, uh, yeah, yeah. Why, why don't I kick it off? Um, so, uh, yeah, on the personal side, sort of, uh, like mentioned already, sort of having a young young family. So one daughter who's two and a half and the other who's six months. And the two and a half year old hit some pretty good milestones from a potty training perspective in the last last week or so, which has been the sort of the focus of our our family life. So yeah, been pretty pumped about that. That's uh, that's been good good fun to watch. The strange strange as that sounds, from a work perspective, similar like we we hit some really good milestones. I'd say like commercially, but I'd say the best news we received, which is a little. I've always been a bit of a almost as, even just a fan of startups and tech companies as a spectator before I even started MetaView. And one company that we work with, I've always been a sort of a fan of from the outside and actually the CEO of that company, I've also been a fan of a sort of quite well-known company, well-known CEO. And uh, since they've become a customer, one of the, the director of talent that we work with there mentioned, she brought it up during their, their quarterly business review that this is one of, one of the main things they're focusing on is improving their, improving their interviewing and MetaView is a big part of that. And uh, uh, apparently the, the CEO got really jazzed, about, A, great that she brought it up, B, the CEO actually got really jazzed about it and wanted to give it a go. So that's like a, yeah, was a sort of a, a, a smiling moment for me, for sure. Those are the best. As a, as a founder, you're like, yes, it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> that feeling is uh, you work so hard to, to, to get to those moments. So, so kudos to you all. I'll go next. My, my personal good news is pretty straightforward. I've been on vacation for a week. We've been in LA. We've got one more day today in LA. Then we head to Denver on our way back to Texas. So we're just like doing everything we can to avoid the hundred and whatever degree weather in Texas right now. It's miserable. So a little stop in Denver here ahead of us. And so that I'm super excited about that on the kind of work front. I'm in like the second wave of, of network meetings. Um, Sile, you, I, 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 you probably don't know this, but I'm in the, in the process. I sold my previous startup 
to a private equity backed company. And now I'm trying to figure out what my next move is. And so the long story short, my ideal path is I'm getting a lot of positive feedback on. So that that's encouraging. Yeah, that's excellent news. All right. So my good news story, you know, briefly mentioned this before we hit record, but we we just wrapped up our H2 planning for the modern people leader. And one of our big focuses for the second half of the year is figuring out like what's the next modern people leader product. Like if you can think of the first product being the podcast, what's product number two? And um, you know, Steven having a startup background, me sort of having that same background, we're gonna follow the lean startup model. And we started, we wrote out the the script for the lean startup interview that we're gonna be uh, interviews that we're going to be conducting over the next probably two or three months, we've, you know, narrowed it down to like, you know, three or four problems that we're really excited to tackle that we hear people leaders consistently talking about on the show. And, um, we have a list of, of people that we're reaching out to for the first wave of interviews that we do. So I am really excited. We have, I think our first interview on Friday and we're going into this like super open-minded we don't know if the next NPL product is a paid community. We don't know if it's a tech product. We don't know if it's a widget. Like we're really going into it like as open-minded as possible. And I'm, yeah, I'm stoked. I, I'm ready for whatever it is that we build next. And uh, yeah, got some good stuff coming. That's awesome. It's great news. All right, Sile. So I think, Stephen, you, you commonly refer to this as our Brene Brown question, where we ask you to share your story. And uh, I feel like, you know, most founders have quite interesting stories and everyone has, you know, a slightly different background and, um, you know, journey to entrepreneurship. So I'm curious, like what, what is your story and how did that lead you to co-founding MetaView? Yeah. So from a, a career sort of early career perspective, um, was all set to, uh, go to law school after, after my, my undergrad uh, finished and was just about to sort of, I guess, go finish up the application process. I'd been accepted into a certain school and just had a bit of a moment of clarity, or at least now I look back on it as a moment of clarity that I'm not sure that's what I want to do. I came from a family of uh, a lot of people in the medical profession in my family. So obviously a really, really great, great environment to grow up in. But also one of the downsides is there's not a lot of ton of knowledge within the family about the private sector, basically, like what, what other careers are out there other than a doctor, lawyer, accountant, these type of things. So at that point decided, hey, you know what, I'll just take a year to see what's out there and sort of explore, explore the world of industry, but like pretty directionless initially in, in my career. I'd say like ambitious and somewhat thoughtful about what I want to do, but not, not without a clear direction. So I ended up via a pretty circuitous route getting into tech and was lucky enough very early in my career to sort of take over or, or sort of manage a product within a within an internet company that was their, their mobile application and this was before mobile was actually the focus of every internet company and sort of yeah was in this lucky position where where i was i was looking after this product when the iphone came out when the app store launched and then all of a sudden this is like a massive thing for the company and i have all of this institutional knowledge almost in my head about how that how this platform actually works so that was a starting point for me. That's what got me sort of essentially just a massive fanboy of tech, even coming from sort of not a technical background initially. Really threw myself into it. 
worked my way towards, I guess, increasingly senior product leadership roles within a few companies and landed at Uber, which is where where hiring really started to become my, my I guess, secondary passion behind, behind tech, I would say. Um, yeah, ma- main takeaway from Uber, well, actually not main, there's a ton of takeaway from Uber. I was there at the, the same time where sort of there was, a, there was a two headlines a week about something salacious going on at Uber. That was the same period I was there. Obviously, I did not. I did not feature in any of those headlines or any of those articles, I promise. But uh, uh, one of the things I did take away was that we were just hiring a bunch and felt like we had a lot of leverage in a lot of the work that we did from a product. When we're building product, shipping product, experimenting with products with our customers, we had a ton of leverage, a ton of sort of instrumentation, really felt really informed, more informed than I ever felt as a product manager at any company previously. But when it came to hiring, it felt a lot like how I did at every other company previously. You know, it really felt like a grind not as high leverage as I really sort of knew and understood it to be. I know how important it is to hire great people, but I can't get away from the fact that while I'm doing this, I feel like it's a really unreliable process. I don't know if like this candidate who I think is great is actually going to get hired, even though I have really strong conviction about it because it's this consensus driven process. So yeah, about that that was sort of joined you about seven years ago, about five years ago, decided to leave and start MetaView to try and solve that along with the co-founder. Realized there was a lot more to it uh, in order to solve it than I maybe maybe thought sort of at the time. But uh, yeah, five years in, um, really focusing now on helping recruiters and hiring teams just be more human during the hiring process. So that means being more present when they're with candidates, being responsible for really getting to know them, which is what recruiters and interviewers want to be responsible for. They don't want to be responsible for the admin and the drudgery and all these things being responsible for making accurate and informed judgments about them. That's what our product is really about. So yeah, really started off the back of this, these experiences at Uber where we were, we were hiring like crazy and felt like there could be, we could do more to help people do a great job. Love this story. So what would you say is, as you were describing leaving five years ago to start MetaView and how it was a bit more difficult to solve for this problem than you expected. I'm curious, like what, what would you say has been the biggest, like, you know, unexpected challenge of, of being a founder for, or specifically an HR tech company? Um, so I would say, I think whether it's unexpected or just maybe une- like the size of the challenge was unexpected, maybe sort of like academically, I knew it existed is just, it's obviously such a people centric role, right? So one of the things you can think, of course, in general talent, HR broadly, recruiting as well, and talent, it's a horizontal, right? It affects everyone in the company. It's not sort of specific to engineering or sales or GNA or whatever. It's, it's a horizontal. And it's all of each of those horizontals are also filled with people. So even if you think you're sort of buying a technology product, you might think of yourself as like, oh, we're selling a platform here, but you're really, you're just selling to the technology, to the, let's say the tech department or the sales department or whatever it might be. Recruiting is very different. You're very, in our world, we don't want to just act, just be selling to recruiting. We actually want to sell so that everyone is part of this, this hiring platform. And that just makes it a really hard, it's a really big lift, frankly, to get everyone on board. And so it's one of the things we've actually adapted about our approach is we really try and take this layered approach to, to rolling out our product now. But I would say that was one of the big, big realizations. Like we had a ton of buy-in as soon as people would see the product, like, yeah, this makes a ton of sense. This is definitely the way it's going to be in the future. Let me have a few discussions internally, speak to my VP of engineering, speak to my VP of sales, realize they've got some other priorities right now in their team, and it just makes things difficult. The product's changed a lot since then, and we don't get so many of those roadblocks, but I'd say that was the the sort of big, yeah, big challenge that we didn't know the size of when we first started. How much of that resonates with you, Stephen? 
Oh, so, so much resonates with me. I, my, my answer would have been a little bit different, but that's just like the category is employee listening is very different to kind of the talent acquisition space, but so much does, does resonate with me. And I guess for me, when you think about your success, you know, there are a lot of people who'd be like, oh, well, this is so obvious. Like, you know, what, what your product does like five years ago, though, this wasn't really on the radar and so like, how does it feel to like have called, you know, five years ago, you made a bet, right? Yeah. And it's in a, you know, a, a, a hot space already, right? Because yeah. HR tech has just been work tech, particularly the last three years has just been going insane. How does it feel to like have chosen a niche in, in your kind of industry that is now is just like arguably the hot, one of the hottest parts of the industry? Yeah. Yeah, whenever I think about this, I, I, I just think it's a mix of luck and judgment, to be honest with you. I think <laughs> that um, the, the, the sort of one of the reasons we knew that, hey, it's, the, it's an interesting, it, it might be the right time to start a company that tries to make sense of what's happening in interviews and structure this, this deluge of unstructured data that we get out of these conversations. Again, as you said, five years ago, maybe it was actually a little bit early to do it. But the reason we thought it might be the right time is because clearly more and more conversations at that point were being had within arm's arm's length of like a camera and a microphone. And so you just start to think, okay, there's going to be a world where the sort of the step to start to capture this data is getting smaller and smaller. It's becoming like a half step. And then of course we had the pandemic, lots of negative consequences of that that are, that are obvious, but one of them that sort of a lot of people re reflect on and, and sort of still sort of live within is this push to remote and how, how suddenly so many more of our meetings weren't just had within arm's length of a camera and a microphone they were had literally into a camera and a microphone and that was their that was their working life and then of course in the last six to nine months as large language models and this this ai revolution has has started to take hold suddenly what we're able to do with that that data that we're we've always captured as part of our platform has just 10x so two things that i didn't predict right so i can't there's when i say luck you know there's there's two things i didn't predict. obviously i give myself and the team lots of credit for uh building things that mattered in the meantime such that we you know had customers we had a growing business but really now it's sort of a it's definitely a new era that yeah I couldn't have couldn't have planned for and so you've given us a little bit of an explanation of what metaview does but like if you had to describe this to to an aunt of yours or to your to a grandparent like how would you describe what metaview does and then could you kind of walk us through how the product has changed over the years? Because I know that y'all made a pretty big pivot here in the last few months. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, uh, we made a lot of improvements. I'd say in the last few months, more than like a more than a more than a pivot. But so yeah, how would I describe it to family? I mean, to be honest, it's a bit of a tough one. I feel like I've always struggled to <laughs> describe to family, especially with AI being who knows, you know, one of the most searched things and one of the most sort of top of mind things. It's, it's actually gotten a lot easier. So funny enough, it's gotten easier as the as the product has gotten more powerful. It's almost become easier to describe it. I describe it as an AI assistant for hiring teams or for interviewing teams. If they want to go one step deeper than that, we're an AI sort of an AI note taker for hiring that makes it so that you can do hiring hands free. You can focus on the candidate. Our AI is going to take notes for you, summarize them for you, structure them for you such that really your job of your sort of administrative task during and after the interview goes away because our AI gets it so close to perfect every time that you don't need to worry about that anymore. So that's what we do in, in a nutshell. In terms of how it's evolved, so I sort of mentioned that I had this 
we had this experience that my I was at Uber, my co-founder was on the engineering team at, at Palantir. So sort of two high growth US tech companies, but quite different approaches to hiring. One of the things that really the founding question that started the company was, how do we make it so that no bad hiring decisions are made again? Okay. We're never going to achieve that. It's never going to be no bad hiring decisions ever again, but that's our big hairy goal. Can we, how close can we get to helping the world achieve that? And again, as, as hiring managers and interviewers, what we knew, and I guess had a sort of, we over-indexed on, which I see as a positive thing for our sort of perspective on the market, is that what happens in the interviews is really what determines who you hire. Like that's what, that's the part of it we saw. And we knew that frankly, we were responsible for hiring decisions. So it sort of just made sense that that's, that's the key moment that determines who, who you hire. The way we started the company was based on that phrase, how do you make it so no bad hiring decisions are made again? Well, impossible for us to achieve that unless people actually have data about what's happening in their interviews, right? I'm a product manager. I cannot build you an amazing product if I don't know how the product's being used right now. Same thing for talent. So we started more with this interview analytics approach, which is the sort of the, the product that suffered from the, the problem you asked me about earlier, which was well, to do that, you need to roll it out to everyone in order to get your data. Then you need to wait three months to get the data. And then you need to sort of understand the data. And it's really hard to drive urgency when it's sort of, there's quite a lot of friction to get the out outcome that you need. The big pivot or yeah, the big pivot that's occurred in the last six months has been still very much part of what we believe to be important. This, this sort of aggregate analytics view of the, the hiring machine, the interviewing machine that sort of constitutes a part of your hiring machine. But now we focus much more on the end user. How can we make recruiters, interviewers, hiring managers, how can we make their life easier when they're doing this, what is supposed to be a really high leverage task? Essentially, how can we make hiring feel like the high leverage activity that it is? And that's made everything much, much easier for us because actually it turns out for talent team, for, for if you're a talent leader to roll out a product to the whole company, you sort of need those people to like it. You have a certain amount of authority within the company, obviously, but we're asking you a big, we're asking you to put a lot of faith in us if we're saying, hey, use your use your corporate credibility to push this on everyone in the company because you want data. That's a really hard, tough, tough story to tell. But actually, when you delight end users, make their life easier, we're finding that's a great way to, to get people on board to the product, both sort of like technically, literally onboarded to the product, but also sort of emotionally. Like, yeah, this makes a ton of sense. This is why we should be capturing our interviews because it means that I don't have to do the drudgerous task of, of writing up my notes. And, and how big is the uh, MetaView team? We are uh, 11 people. Okay, 11 people. And why should why should me and Steven be jealous that, that you get to work there? Uh, there's a bunch of sort of, I, I, I'm sure sort of folks give similar answers around, like the quality of the people and, and these sorts of things. Obviously all true. And like, we, 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 we love our team. We think we've done a great job hiring uh, a really talent-dense uh, uh, organization. But honestly, I think the thing that excites us all right now um, and, and hopefully this remains the case for a while, is it's quite rare to be able to, one, be building on the cutting edge. So like everyone is talking about how are we going to apply AI in a pragmatic, impactful way. So to be working on that cutting edge, but also be pushing it against existing customers who have real problems and are giving us real feedback about it. It's not a toy. It's not a sort of experimental thing. It's not a prototype. We're actually putting product in people's hands on people's screens that was something that's literally not even imaginable five or six months ago 
and we're getting feedback about it. Like it's it's really amazing to be part of. So I think that honestly, the, the sort of the, the biggest selling point for if folks wanted to join MetaView would be if you want to learn and play an active role in determining how AI is going to affect how we work, there literally can't be many better places on earth to do that. In one of my most recent interviews, I mentioned in the good news that I've been having these, you know, I, I'm a big believer in networking and the power of networking and I, every single job I've ever had, whether it was an employee or a founder, I found all of them through my network. And so in these meetings, like I, I'm obviously, they're very intentional. So one of the questions that I, I've asked is like, where should I be looking? Like, here's the profile of what I'm looking for. Where should I look for that? And the feedback has been resounding. Like there are very specific segments of, of HR tech that, that you should be looking at and AI <laughs> for the reasons that you were just, you were just mentioning, Sal. I think that yeah. there's just so much going on. It's so early in, in the expansion, like this, this rapid uh, expansion of the industry that if you're wired that way and 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 I am I can see why I I can see the excitement and I know that feeling of like building something that can really make a difference and so I, I want to talk about that here in a sec but before we do I want to zoom out a little bit and so one of the things so this is a newer style of modern people leader that we're doing where we're interviewing HR tech CEOs or anyone that is kind of adjacent to the people leader realm. And, and obviously, as the CEO of MetaView, we have a lot of exciting things we want to talk to you about, but we've been doing for our HR leader, our people leader interviews, something called State of the Union on Talent. And so I want to I want to do a similar segment, but change it slightly and and have a state of the union on AI conversation and not not so much specific to kind of your very specific kind of use case and application, but just more yep. broadly, because it feels like that and, and you've been a part of some some digital revolutions, right? Having worked at Uber. And what what is different about the the AI revolution? And where do you think we are in this kind of phase and what's to come? Yeah. Well, obviously we're right at the start, right? To, to sort of answer your, your, your last question first, where, where are we? We're, we're, we're right at the start of this. The level of sort of the resolution of predictions as you go further out gets sort of less and less. So I try and think of things just in, in broad strokes when I sort of, analyze how we how we whether beyond recruiting just how i've always worked within any organization i sort of think about ai being able to help us in a few ways and, and a sort of a core principle of all three of these things is really just understanding ai to be something that's really good at making predictions and that could be as simple as how you use chat gpt which is it's predicting what the most likely word is next in a string or a sequence or a monologue or a paragraph whatever it might be but you can apply that to sort of to, to basically anything. So when you think about the reason that's a useful model to think of, because when you think about your work, often, often your actions are actually there's an underlying prediction about what's going to happen off the back of that action, which is why you're taking that action. Anyway, this will make more sense when I sort of describe my, my way of thinking about it. So really, I, I see it sort of impacting us in three ways. One is uh, automation. So the sort of the bucket or the bin of tasks that can be automated has now gotten much larger. We thought it was going to be 
like literally the things that require me just when I click this and I click that, I wish someone could automate that away because that's like, feels like a total waste of time. The, the bar's much higher now. It's like, in our case, again, don't want to be too specific to us, but, you know, pulling out the most important information from a conversation, suddenly you realize that's not actually, that, there's, that requires intelligence, of course, it, but artificial intelligence can do it because it's not really, it's not really so much of a, something that can be learned over time relatively easily. So automation, you know, what, what, that you, what are you doing that you feel like you can somewhat do on autopilot? That's probably something that basically an autopilot is going to start to do. So automation is one bucket. The second bucket is detection. So we all have sort of questions, again, irrespective of industry you're in, like, oh, I'd love to know this. Or I'd love to know that. that would help me make this decision about what to do in future. But it's impossible to know that because I don't have the data. Not, not only maybe I do have the data in a database somewhere, or maybe I don't even have the data. It's not being captured at all. There's, it's not even in my purview, the idea that we could be capturing that data. Well, that goes away now as well, because suddenly we have technology that's able to sort of consume vast amounts of unstructured data. And then we can essentially use unstructured queries to ask questions about it. So you just like jump the whole sort of need for sort of capturing and then structuring data in order to make it consumable and then learning like a data querying language in order to extract meaning from it and then build a visualization so that you can actually influence some, like all of that. I'm not saying that totally goes away, but there's a lot of use cases where that, a lot of cases where that's no longer needed. And so your mind just has to massively broaden to what are the things that we can actually detect now that I thought were impossible. And again, just to bring it to life, I don't, again, I know most about my industry, obviously in our case, that could be, well, previously, of course, I could never know if as a company, we were going easy on some candidates in the final stage interview and hard on others. It is impossible unless I'm going to literally sit in all of them, keep a mental tally of how many questions we are or something. Like that. I'm just not going to do it. No one's going to do it. Suddenly, that's very possible, actually, because it's it, in fact, it's, it's, it's almost it's almost negligible how, how sort of easy that is to do now at this point. So suddenly you can detect much more information, which means, of course, you should have better decisions off the back of it. And I think the third bucket, which is the one that people, there's probably the most column inches around and maybe the most uh, beer around, uh, some of it healthy, some of it, you know, sometimes it can be a bit over the top, is recommendation or decision. Like, at what point do we start to say, hey, this AI can actually make recommendations that are essentially as good as a decision? As, and I accept the recommendation every time. So essentially, it's a decision. And there's going to be some parts of our working world that that affects and we'll willingly do, we'll want that to be the case. And there'll be others where we're a little bit more sort of conservative about whether that's a good idea. And there'll be others where it's just like a blanket no. Like as humanity, we don't, that's, we see that as a human decision. The way that I see that going is that essentially we'll start to think about these AI tools essentially as assistants. Um, and just like when you onboard someone who might be your assistant or maybe a more junior member of the team, initially you give them quite a lot of oversight. You might delegate a task to them, but you give them quite a lot of oversight before they send that report to that to that other person in the company, you might look at it, go through it page by page and, you know, redline a few things. Next time they do it, it's a bit better. Next time they do it, it's a bit better. And then eventually you're like, you know, it's a waste of my time to look through this person's work because it's so close to right every time that my time is better spent elsewhere. And that's the same relationship we'll have with our, with, with AI, essentially. There'll be this initial phase where we should be really focused on, is this actually a good output? I actually see too many cases where people are taking sometimes the output of, a, of an AI as, oh, that... It, it wrote a job description, so it must be good. Like, no, that's not the right way to think about things. It's your job. You're still accountable for the output. But it, that does mean at some point you, you'll you sort of make a judgment call of, is my time best spent overseeing the output of this thing? Or is it better spent elsewhere? And that's the sort of the gradual, much as it's a revolution now, I think that sort of, that at that decision level, it'll be much more gradual. 
as I'm as I'm there as I'm listening to you, first of all, like thank you for laying it out I, the way you did. I think that is a, a great way of looking at it and understanding it because a lot of the conversations that that I'm having that we're having on even on this show is like people just trying to understand the implications of AI. And one quick follow up question: you you mentioned we're at the beginning. However, it feels like a fully fleshed out beginning. And like, you know, mm. usually beginnings and revolutions start with like a scrappy start. Yeah. This is like, it, it, it's so clean and so functional mm-hmm. and it, it it applies to so many use cases. That's the, you know, how does something like that happen? You know, is that yeah. just go back to the, uh, those that were kind of investing in the, in the main tech? Like how, how does that, how are we at the beginning? Although it seems like it's been around for a while. I don't think that's that uncommon actually. Uh, you know, when we first started to electrify factories, for example, so there's a story. I'm, I'm stealing this from a from 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 a book I read, but sort of I think useful folks may have sort of been aware of it. Um, back in the day, you know, factories were steam powered essentially, and so every sort of machine in the factory had to be directly sort of attached to the, the the central engine within the factory. So your layout of the factory floor was very different. You couldn't have these sort of large, large expansive factories they were all quite small boxy because these machines just needed to be close to an engine and that the central what, what was a factory it was a big building with an engine in the middle of it with machines attached to it and then electricity came along and the first sort of instantiation of that was well we've got some factories that are already here let's replace that that steam powered motor engine whatever it might be with an electrical one but leave the layout the same great we can now sort of run these machines much more efficiently we can leave them to work overnight because we don't need to watch them so real like significant improvement in in the efficiency with which things were produced were were manufactured but over time of course people realize like oh damn we don't need to have these small factories that are all centered around this one machine we can actually have this massive expansive factory with lots of machines that are operating all the time and and whatnot and so then the sort of the real revolution was much more gradual because of course it takes a lot of time to build that infrastructure around you know no longer with this assumption you had to build in a certain way so I think that's a good analogy for what will happen in the way of work. Yes, the initial impact is massive because you're essentially putting a turbocharger on what we're already doing. Makes sense to completely lean into that because it's a good way to be competitive and win and all those things. So like, I'm not sort of trying to dissuade people to really lean into sort of strapping one of these turbochargers to their back. But in the long run, what we'll realize is the work that we actually do will change in more fundamental ways. And that's the thing that I think is much harder to to like predict and you know it's going to be the thing that's going to be really fascinating to observe essentially totally agree and so what are some of the the ways that the most forward thinking organizations and companies out there are leveraging the turbocharger that is ai yeah i i think uh, our perspective and obviously what what we're seeing is that automation is the first and highest the, the most immediately valuable way to sort of think about ai Again, if I take a recruiting lens specifically, we're talking in summer of of 2023. Last year, nine months or so has been a pretty tough one for for recruiters in general, like lots of layoffs, but still quite a lot of high demands on recruiting team, even with a smaller team. And just a general need, I guess, to do do more with less. That's like the overriding sort of theme that we hear from recruiting teams. And there's no way that that's unique to recruiting teams, right? That's just the general business context at the moment. Like we need to maximize our efficiency. So I see most people focusing on that automation side. Essentially, how can I make it so that we can be just as productive 
or even more productive than we've ever been because busy work is no longer sort of a, a factor in our day-to-day. And I don't. I, this is what I mean by these t- things taking a long time. I think we're taking about talking about a, a reasonable number of years where that remains the sort of where we shake out all those ways where we could actually be automating these things. And I and I don't think it will be binary, right? Hey, there's this bucket of things that should definitely be automated, and there's this bucket that definitely shouldn't be. I think organizations will take positions. They will make judgments. We think it's really important to be artisanal with this thing, so we're not automating that away, and that's what makes us unique. Whereas we think, you know, company B thinks. Actually, that's not a differentiator for us. We can automate some of that and it's going to be, you know, three times or 10 times as efficient and 90% as high quality. And that's absolutely fine for us. And so you'll get these different competitive dynamics sort of starting to emerge, um, even within that that automation um, bucket. So when I say automation, of course, the thing that AI is bringing to the table is that automation of these increasingly sophisticated tasks. But the so what of that is actually the, it's actually the sort of, it's the counter, right? It's what are the things that we're not automating and we're going to do an exceptionally good job of and are going to make us unique that people will spend more time on. So uh, the consequences aren't sort of just boring efficiency gains. I think the consequences are actually more greater creativity and greater greater human input into the things that organizations care about because of the automation of the of all the other stuff. It's funny. We're it, even as you know the modern people leader, we're already making judgments about like what should be automated versus what shouldn't be. So for example, one thing that I've chosen not to automate is editing. Like there are AI editors out there where you can upload your file and it'll spit out like an edited version. But from my experience, it's not always perfect. And there are also tools where you can like, you know, put your entire video file in there and it'll spit out 10 video clips. But what I found is it's like still not perfect, right? Like they're not really the moments that I think are going to be the best to feature. So I've chosen yeah. to to continue doing the manual work yeah. and fully edit the episode. So, so, so let me, let me, let me, I guess, I don't want to say tell you, but let me predict for you the way that's going to sort of change over time. You will, and whatever software you're using for that outcome, either you adopt, either you'll adopt a new one or the one you're using currently will work out a way to include it. We'll start to introduce some AI elements into the product and they might be, okay, this person takes their, Edit, they're editing really seriously. So the way it works for them is we just help them with the maybe sort of once you've identified the bit you want to edit, how can we sort of cut that for you and literally make it so you don't have to draw the line on the sound wave here and, you know, that type of thing you won't have to do anymore. Then all of a sudden, this assistant will literally learn from you like, hey, it, it tends to be when uh, uh, when we ask uh, this question, that's pretty regularly one of the things that we like to include in a clip that we upload to LinkedIn. So actually, before Daniel even gets to the editing suite, it's already going to be that, hey, I think I think this clip might be one you're really interested in. So it's, it's much less upload and see what you get back, much more ephemeral, proactive, I'll be there for you. And if I get things right, great. If I don't, it doesn't matter. I haven't actually impacted or worsened your workflow. So I think that's, uh, and that's a sort of a, a philosophy we have with, with MetaView as well of uh, it's not sort of, it's not an all or nothing thing. You're, yes, you're doing a human activity. AI can still help you. And sort of, yeah, in, in, in I guess yeah. the way I describe it is that. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I'm looking forward to the day the editing software allows me to do that. But then for like other things, you know, uh, if I need to write a social post and I have, you know, a, a 300 
word quote from a guest that we've had on the show before I would go through and like try to summarize it myself. And it would take me like 30 minutes just to kind of make sense of what they were saying. Now I can just throw that into chat GPT and it spits out like a perfect summary and bullet points. And from there I can start, you know, constructing um, a social post. And right now that's, that's perfect. Like that's something that I want to automate. In the future, hopefully I can automate some of the, the video clip stuff yeah. or at least get the recommendations. Yeah. But I just, uh, I don't want to sort of noodle on this too much, but do you want to automate the selection of the quotes? What, what, my, what I loved about the example you gave was you understand your audience really well. You think, actually, this body that, of, of content that this person is communicating is really what I think my audience wants to know. And no one's better than you. No AI is better than you at knowing what your audience want and the journey you're taking them on. So that's the really valuable, that's the alpha that you have as a, someone who's obviously working in, in, in this business. But yeah, the actual sort of, hey, what's a good way to summarize that? And how do I regurgitate that in a different way? Yeah, that can be, I, I, you're happy to have someone help you with that. But I still imagine you'll, you'll hold on to that. Hey, this exactly. is the thing that I think is part of the journey I want to take my, my community on. Totally. Yeah. So I, I think there are a lot of different responses to AI. I think there are people that are embracing it. And I, I feel like it's pretty polarizing in the people that I'm I'm talking to about AI. And because we're all in the last six months, I, I don't think we've had a single show where we haven't spoken about AI. Mm-hmm. We're talking about it a lot, but I'm finding there's a lot of hesitation. There's a lot of fear. And to those out there that are skeptical or fearful like how how can we get them a little more comfortable with with this revolution that's happening yeah and some of the best conversations i've had about ai have been with people who have like very little technical knowledge about it and the reason that they've been really good conversations is because they have a sort of a source of confidence around what their job is Hey, my job is to make sure we get we hire people quickly. My job is to make sure candidates have a great experience. My job is to make sure our teams are engaged and performing well. So really, if you can, I think the thing that frees you up to be more experimental with AI is really understanding that you're right in thinking AI for AI's sake is a waste of time. You should purely be thinking about what are we applying this turbocharger to? What is the thing that we're trying to do? Because the business outcomes have not changed. This, this revolution is not a business outcomes revolution. They're exactly the same. You want to sort of make sure your sort of attrition is as low as possible. You want to make sure you're rewarding your top performers. You want to make sure you're hiring great people. You want to make sure those are things are happening quickly. Um, that is all completely the same. So I think your source, again, the, the, the best conversations that I have with folks often unrelated to their, their knowledge of the technology, it's usually related to a deep understanding of the business outcome that they're responsible for. And that allows a certain open-mindedness to technology. And is obviously... I think everyone feels like they sort of, it's really hard to keep up with all the news and developments about AI. And frankly, I, I feel that too. Like I've got a, a pretty, pretty hectic day job and, and personal life as well. And so to literally stay on top of all of the news is, is very tough. But where I think a certain amount of intellectual curiosity around these things is obviously valuable. So, you know, re- completely hiding from it and taking lots of, t- taking too much pride in being ignorant about how the technology works is not a good thing, but it's also not the most important thing to understand. The most important thing to understand is your domain. And the really, I'm just going to say lucky thing that folks in HR and folks in recruitment have is that the core of their work are people. And there's a lot more sort of 
jobs who maybe jobs maybe sort of historically have been considered much more sort of a hard skill where the core thing was not actually people and there you might actually have a bit more of a problem around the disruption that's going to occur in the there's going to be disruption for everyone don't get me wrong but the sort of the amount of the disruption if your job at the moment is putting things in boxes on your screen okay there's like there's that's something that software can do really well now if your job actually there might have been a loads of peripheral stuff that involves using software but your core job is actually around people wow, you're in a really strong position because that's not going away. So I think there's a bunch that people can do to sort of retain that, that or sort of build up their confidence without having to sort of feel like they have to become an expert in the actual technology because you can really champion these, these human outcomes that these businesses have always cared about. Um, did that answer the question? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. And I, got, I have one, one final question, quick question, because you, you already told me you can't predict the future, but in your opinion, 10 years from now, is there a, is there a world where you know a, a material segment of the Fortune 1000 is not using AI? Like, you know, is, is there it, it is that even a possibility in your opinion? No, that's that's impossible. And the reason that's imp- I, I assume there's no material segment of the the, the Fortune 1000 who aren't using software. Like, this is an append. This is this is just the next wave of software, right? So it's it's not going to happen. I, I, funny enough, I saw some articles recently about how the sort of the, like the five richest people in Europe or something are all designer goods founders, like of, you know, Louis Vuitton and these sort of things. So yeah, I'd need to just maybe think a bit more about how it affects industries like those, but I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, I have no idea about how those companies operate. I'm sure they're very data-driven and use a lot of technology to, to, to do what they do. So I'm sure it will impact them too. Yeah, definitely. So I, I want to, I want to talk about what AI means for, I guess, like the human aspects of recruiting. So with with all of the advancements the last couple of years, really call it like the last year, I feel like with generative AI, it's something that we're talking about on almost every episode with guests now, which wasn't the case a year ago. And I think a lot of people in HR or talent are trying to figure out how do I augment what I'm already doing with AI? So like, what should I continue leaving to human judgment and what is something that AI could potentially take over for me and be my assistant and make me more efficient at what I'm doing? And I know we've already talked about some of the use cases, but like what, what else should, should recruiters be thinking about um, potentially replacing with AI? So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's really, really sort of hard to sort of, I guess, be super, um, super specific uh, in, in, in this, because I, I do think that there'll be like a judgment call that, that folks folks need to make, uh, it, depending on how they, how they build their business. But if I focus on my sort of experience, tech companies, knowledge work, knowledge work hiring, and the type of things that recruiting and, and hiring teams get involved in, in, in there, I think there's sort of, uh, I guess, a few buckets where I see things change. So if you think about sort of uh, sourcing, a lot of that right now is, you know, everyone has a profile online. And so the sort of the, the actual the alpha the the sort of the advantage that one had went from being well i've got this network it's in my black book it's on my rolodex and you know i can be a great recruiter for you because you know i know a bunch of people who are probably able to fill this role or i know where to go i know the person that knows the person that sort of like still like maybe in the higher reaches of recruiting remained relatively important but for you know the majority of hires became irrelevant because everyone was available online and you'd have sources scouring the internet like i think there's gonna be a back to the future moment on that front where of course knowing people, knowing that people exist is no longer enough because software AI does that already. Where recruiters will sort of 
earn their money or earn, become more valuable to their organization is in the judgment aspects of that. So let's say truly understanding what this HM is looking for or actually helping the HM understand what they're looking for. This is the type of thing that recruiters for a long time are saying they wish they could spend more time on, right? Uh, like really coaching the HM to understand what they're looking for in a candidate, what's not important to them, what's more important to them. And then truly also understanding the market and and having that enriched understanding of you know a, a manageable number of human beings that might be a good fit. So deeper connections with candidates as opposed to like tons and tons of conversations with lots of candidates that you found online. So I think that's one sort of where the there's a partial use of AI, right? Use AI for the thing that was 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 a bit of a grind, scouring for profiles, messaging loads of people, seeing how many come through that you get to have a conversation with, having a sort of ridiculously structured, scripted conversation with them to glean some basic information. To So then you can then have a meeting with your hiring manager and see which one that they want to speak to. That's not going to be the way things are. That's not how you you're going to. That's not how a high leverage, high impact recruiter is going to operate. They're going to operate where a lot of that stuff that I described happens automatically. What they focus on is really getting to know the human beings and can sort of present this like shorter menu maybe of potential candidates to coach them through understanding which one to bring in, given the fiber of the team and the culture and all these things that are institutional there or maybe maybe not even written down, maybe not even possible for an. And like to expose to an AI because, you know, it's so it's just in the airwaves between us. So I'd say that's one like sort of bucket is just that sourcing and just getting candidates in the pipeline. In the in the actual hiring process or the tip of the spear, getting people, you know, working, working candidates through the to decide whether we're going to work with them. There are some cases where recruiters are at least part of their role in that is a bit of a bit of cat herding, like cajoling people through the process. Hey, are you free for this? Are you free for that? Can you do this? We've got to make sure we get this candidate in this week. So let's switch this one, this candidate to next week and get this one. All this sort of stuff that's really vital, but also um, not differentiated. Like anyone could be doing that as long as they had the sort of the the, the, the intelligence to identify the problem and sort of the, the attitude to, to go and solve it. Or you're playing the role of somewhat almost like scribe, right? You're sort of making sure that you get notes out of interviewers, you're attending the debrief, you're writing down everything, everyone, like the, the key information people said. You're not like running the hiring decision and making sure it gets to a fair and high quality conclusion. And I think that's a transition that will occur too. So less of that cajoling, less of that cat herding through the process. Again, that's the type of thing that an, an AI assistant will be like perfectly suited to do for you without you taking on any of the sort of the, this like the social collateral burden of having to be the one telling people what to do when they don't want to do it. But it frees you up to focus more on that coaching through the process and maybe even increasingly having a bigger say in the hiring decision as well, rather than just like making sure there is one actually influencing it and advising again, interviewers and HMs on maybe what to do differently next time if the candidate rejects the offer rather than just, okay, cool, on to the next one. Um, let's get them through the process too. So yeah, those I think from a sourcing and hiring and interviewing perspective, those are, again, I think in absolute resolution still needs to be worked out, but that's broad base you know, the, the, the transition that, that I see occurring. So we, we recently had on David Landman, who's the head of global talent development at Goldman Sachs. And he was sharing how doctors are actually using AI to sort of help guide really tough conversations that they're having with patients. Mm-hmm. And how he thinks that the same will start to happen in HR or with managers. So if a manager has to have a really tough conversation with one of their direct reports, they'd be able to use their assistant and their assistant would sort of like give them a framework for having that conversation, whatever that conversation is about, whether it's a performance related conversation or could be anything. 
And I'm I'm curious, like for for recruiting, I imagine that there are going to be some AI assistants that pop up, and maybe MetaView already does this, where I don't know, maybe there is a tough conversation that you have to have with a candidate, or I mean, how to negotiate with a candidate. Like I'm sure there are mm-hmm. so many things that recruiters have to have to do that they could probably get better at through a little bit of coaching. Um, yeah. How how do you how do you see that? Uh, you know, impacting uh, recruiters. Yeah. yeah. I love the example of the doctors, by the way, because I think it re- highlights quite well how um, in some ways AI will replace, in some cases it will augment. So I think AI will, is going to touch a lot of how we work. Even the places, the things we're saying, it's not going to replace. It still may well augment, like the, 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 the example you gave. In the case of going back to doctors, what it's replaced or replacing is like looking at scans, looking at x-rays and identifying whether there's something cancerous in that scan, right? We now know that AI is better at doing that than than a doctor than even a doctor. So like that will just not be a do- job of a doctor anymore. But what what it what will be the job of a doctor is taking a human being through understanding what does this mean for them, what treatments do they are they have to consider, what are the options, you know, reacting to how they react and then sort of adapting. That will remain. But yeah, no reason why you know uh, AI can't help with their memory, right? Hey doc, you've already told this person that when you met them last, you know, you meet 50 patients a week. Each patient I'm sure is very important to you, but the fact is you see lots and lots of them. Whereas this patient is hanging off your every word and remembers everything you said last time, you've already told them this. So like, let's make sure we don't sort of contradict that or uh, say that again, use this session with them to focus on the same thing. again. something like that. I'm sort of making it up, but that's how you can easily imagine that sort of idea. So within recruiting, um, uh, yeah, I think there's, we sort of talked about a bunch that will be automated away, which is a good thing. Um, and then there's, I totally think that it will be more relationship driven you, expectation. What that means, if you take that from an expectations perspective of like, what, what, what should we expect from an amazing recruiter therefore that maybe we don't expect necessarily now, but we love it when we get it, but we don't expect it is, can you actually influence the decision the candidate makes? Can you as the recruiter sort of meaningfully impact if you put a metric on it, our offer acceptance rates, because you've really got to know that candidate. You've got to know, you've had a series of great conversations with them. You've run a great process with them. You, during that process, have recall of everything that they shared with you. And you know that in three of the seven interviews, they'd mentioned that there was this, this underlying concern they have. They sort of mentioned it quite passively. And uh, you can use technology to help you identify that problem and then address it in when you're giving your your sort of as part of your, your talk track for your offer call like that's like next level now you're being wow we're so glad that you're on the team and we would not have closed that candidate if you weren't proficient with these tools and able to have that conversation in a really effective manner so it's still very human it's still about sort of under you know it's still an increase in i think the amount of almost the amount of humanity that that sort of exists in these in these processes but you know augmented by technology so yeah, I, I basically very much agree with uh, with uh, uh, with David Rosen. So, what are the current what are the biggest challenges and objections that you hear from companies? You know, because you're you know you're you're working with companies that are already embracing the the AI revolution that are starting to turbocharge their talent acquisition processes. But I'm guessing there's still others that aren't ready to begin that that journey. And so what what are the most frequent issues or concerns or problems that that companies have that you guys are talking to that are just blocking them from being able to to start leveraging these new tools? Um, 
one of them is like a, just a not it's not a sort of a like a contemporary thing it's just an ongoing thing right and 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 as senior folks within within businesses this is like definitely a, the right thing to do which is you know you've got you've only there's only so many things you can do in it there's only so many things you can do this quarter or this half and you have to obviously weigh up and much as ai is you know i think the hype and the sort of reality are sort of quite there's quite a good connection between the two i think there's like there really is amazing things you can do so you know it you should definitely rethink if your plan doesn't have anything to do with AI and you never even considered it when you made that plan, then you should probably think about it at least. But you, maybe your plan's right. You know, you you understand the terrain of your business better than I, of course. And so you might be. So some of it is just, hey, this isn't this this thing is not a priority right now. We've got this other big burning fire that we need to solve. Like that's always the case. Not everyone should be in market for every AI, AI solution right now, right? That would be crazy. So for sure, it, there's some sort of very reasonable uh, resistance on that level from a more sort of. AI sort of uh, um, like anxiety or like AI angst perspective, which I think is a little bit less justified. I think it fundamentally comes down to almost what you were describing earlier, which is your ability to sort of advocate for changing process or bringing in a tool or whatever. Of course, you feel like to an extent, like your level of understanding of that thing needs to be high enough for you to advocate for something. And of course, we all as as operators have different levels. Like maybe I'm super confident. As long as I understand something in broad strokes, I'm okay advocating for it and like, we'll see how it goes. Whereas other people might be like, hey, I really understand this in complete detail in order before I sort of, I'm going to suggest that we we do this thing. And I think that's, I think now's not the time for that latter bucket. I think now is the time for experimentation. I think you should take a lot of, I think people should take a lot of confidence from the fact that it has to impact your, the outcomes you've always cared about and you've always owned. But within that, you should you sh- now is the time to be experimenting with other ways of working or other tools because there ha- a revolution has a- is occurring. So yeah, I'd say it's it's to do with that sort of confidence that you you described and or, or fear maybe to put it even in, in stronger terms. Yeah, fear, fear to experiment, or, or maybe put differently, not being open to experimenting and instead thinking we need to find our final like all sing all dancing bells and whistles perfect solution, like. I mean, hopefully MetaView can be one of those things. That's a high bar. We can we can do a we can do a we can do a lot a lot for you without having to necessarily sort of uh, reach that high bar. Yeah, I you know we use a, a sales tool. The company that acquired uh, our business, um, they use a sales tool that has like this this AI component. And I have to be honest, like before I saw, and so similar to to what what you've described, that the problem that MetaView solves. This is uh, a problem that with salespeople, right? You're taking a discovery call, you're doing a follow-up, you're doing a touch. You suddenly get them on the phone, and you didn't, you weren't expecting to get them on the phone. And you're, you're taking notes. You're trying to yeah. ask the right question. And after my first interaction with the uh, with this kind of AI note taker, I was like, oh my god, like this is so great. Like I wouldn't have caught like all of these details in my notes. And the fact that I don't have to take the notes, that's the more important fact is going back to your comment earlier, like now I can focus on the more higher value adding activity, which is okay, based on this great call that I have and the information that I got, what is my next move on the deal? How do I get this deal closed? And I think the the deeper we get into this, the more we're going to find that we've spent so much time on these low value tasks yeah. and it's just really going to open things up. And, and for me, 
because uh, unfortunately we need to get to rapid fire questions. But for me, I I believe that that is going to be the game changer because there's just going to be some organizations that get so far ahead that lean yeah. into the the turbocharger that they start you know you start to see your competitors like pulling away and you're like wait a second what are they doing now because we've always competed well and yeah. it's just going to be a forcing function um, yeah I, I think that's a like maybe that maybe maybe i i don't want to sort of like i don't think any of us are trying to rely on fear as the motivator of anything but i think if the fear should exist the fear the main fear that people should have is of what you're describing which is you right now if you work say you're competing on this deal with another company that doesn't have anything like this solution you are at a relative advantage like you're more likely to win that deal than they are and that of course is happening across you know every sort of industry like much as you may have a fear of adopting things i think a lot of the time the the sort of the the fear of adopt the, the adopting and then it going wrong has a pretty low floor. Like it's not you're not going to do that much. It's not going to be that bad. Whereas actually yeah. the, the the fear you should have of not adopting these things and what might happen, the opportunity cost is boundless. Which like, who knows? You could yeah. Well, so, go ahead. Real Daniel. quick, Stephen, do you have time for one more question? I do. I do. Okay. But we, cool. we're, we're going to have to go through rapid fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just like I don't want to end this one. So I'm I'm happy to stretch it out. So, so one last question for you, Sile. So when you think about some of your, I guess, star customers, is there is there one that comes to mind where you've seen like a, a pretty drastic change in, in how they run like their entire maybe talent function or maybe just the interview process itself? Like what what's one story that comes to mind? So actually, I would like very confidently say like, no, I would not say there's been a massive change in how it sort of relates to this turbocharger thing. It is not, we haven't gone through that foundational restructuring of how hiring happens. I think that will happen. I actually think the idea of having really structured hiring processes that are um, not considering the context of the candidate so much will go away because that's one of the things that this co-pilot will allow us to do. We'll stop running hiring processes that match what the ATS, someone designed in the ATS and we'll start running hiring processes that understand this candidate's context and what we need to do to either win them or disqualify them or whatever it might be. So I don't think those foundational things have happened. I'm really excited about being part of making that happen. The the sort of the, the big impact that we have is on individuals' productivity. So we regularly run um, surveys as part of our products. How much time do you think MetaView uh, saves you in sort of writing up your notes? Typical uh, range is five to 10 hours per week, which is massive for recruiters, massive. Uh, people who are interviewing a lot, basically. We actually had one who said it was 20 hours per week. I was like, wow, you were really spending a lot of time. And and this person's situation was that a technical recruiter working with a really high-performing technical team really wanted to give and put their best foot forward when they provided notes on on candidates for the hiring manager to review, who who happened to be very diligent at going through notes before, before they spoke to the candidate. So the context... She was she was right to spend that time on the notes, but it's just an incredible amount of time. And so that th- those sort of stories are the ones that we hear again and again. Just the sheer amount of time that you get back to spend time on other again differentiated things is is what we repeatedly hear again and again. Love it. Well, we're at that spot where we've got to turn the corner and bring the conversation to an end. Sile, it's been it's been a lot of fun, but we're not quite done yet. So now we we've got a couple of of rituals on the yep. traditions on the modern people leader. The next one is rapid fire questions. So same set of questions that we that we ask all of our guests. So first question: How do you define a modern people leader? What are the traits and characteristics? 
Yeah, so I would say the, the consistent thread that I've seen among um, great people leaders um, that I've worked with is really understanding that there is a need to move forward and to, to, to change process over time while maintaining that firm grasp on the things that don't change. So much as you should be open to change, you should have a set of things that don't change. And I talked about my, my perspective on this earlier, which is essentially the business outcomes. They don't change. Really firmly grasping that is, is while also being open to experimentation is what I see as like the, the two cornerstones of great innovation and great experimentation and therefore like the modern people leader. Love it, love it. If you could go back in time and talk to a 22 year old you, what career advice would you give yourself and why? Uh, think less about strategy and more about execution. So I started, I sort of gave a bit of a story about my early career. I essentially, I essentially spent a bit too much time in strategy early in my career. And then a sort of a few years into it, moved over to delivery, in my case, product delivery, product management. And it was great. I should have done it earlier. You know, getting things done, making things happen is, uh, is it's really great to make sure you get as much of that under your belt as possible. And then, uh, you know, worry about the, the strategy side of things when you actually have, the, the credibility to point out. Plus one of that strategy. It just sounds so sexy though. It sounds so cool, right? That, that yeah. the bit, that's the bit that you should be doing, but I, I, my experience has been similar is last question. Is there anything you believe to be true about the world of work, but don't yet have the data to support? Um, there's been a bunch of studies into the cost of a bad hire. And I think they all, even the most sort of aggressive ones, wildly undervalue the cost of a bad hire. They always come in somewhere around like 30 to 50% of the, the hire's salary. It's like, no way. You've got to at least take their full salary to start with. You've got to take into account the negative impact on the team. Like if you have one high performer who leaves the team because they're like, well, the, the talent density in this team is no longer high enough. I want to go somewhere else. You have to bake that in too. And that's like really catastrophic. Then you have to take into account the fact that you'll probably move them on at some point in the next 12 to 18 months so that you've got to hire for the, that role again. And then you have to take into account not having hit your objective or being more likely to not having hit your objective, which we hope was a you know a big commercial objective. So I basically think the, the sort of the downside to making a bad hire um, is much larger than people like to admit to themselves. Um, and same thing for a miss, if you miss a great hire sort of on, on, the, on the other side too. So yeah, that's uh, it's hard to get the data but that's how we run our business. So we've we've gotten a lot of our guests from 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 this question I'm about to ask. So who should we bring on to the show next? Is there anybody that 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 you see out there that you're like, "Ooh, I would I would love to hear more from that person." Yeah. One is a good 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 friend of mine, good friend of the company, um which uh, Rich Cho. Um he's led recruiting teams at, you know, some of the uh, the sort of the the most talked about rocket ships. Uh Facebook, when it was called Facebook, Robinhood, um, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. So a bunch of amazing companies. He has really, really great thoughts about, and I think when you speak to this strategy versus execution side, of course, he now talks a lot about the strategy side of things, but it's 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 layered in actually executing this at some of the like most storied companies of like the last 15 years. So he's a great, 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 great person. It has great war stories as well. So would recommend him. Uh, and then the other one is, um, which might be a bit of a stretch, maybe not, but, but maybe someone else in his company, uh, the company Automatic have a really sort of great um, and differentiated view of how they do hiring specifically. So Matt Mullenweg is their their CEO. He'd be a great person to get on or, or someone sort of senior in the, in the talent leadership team there because, yeah, they have very different ways of going about hiring. Lots of 
you know, uh, they have this long trial that they have people do, this work trial that you have to sort of make yourself available for, for sort of weeks um, as part of the interview process. So, uh, yeah, very different approach and it's worked for them. We'll have to reach out to both of them. All right. So final tradition of the modern people leader, which is one word or phrase close. So we all respond with a word or phrase from the show that we want to end with. And I I can go first just because I, I cheated and I already have something written down, but I'm going to say turbocharge. I like that one. Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, it's obviously opportunity as opposed to a threat. AI is an opportunity, not a threat. That's the, I think the thing that people really need to wrap their heads around. And much of it's, sometimes it is scary to be at the foot of an opportunity, just as it's scary to be at the foot of a threat, but uh, it's definitely the right psyche to, to have. Love that. <clears throat> and mine kind of dovetails well with that. Um, I'm going to go with higher value. Uh, you know, focus on the higher value activities because I, I that that's the most exciting part of the world. Uh, the part of the role that AI could play in the future is that all of us just get to do less of the crappy things we hate doing and more of the things that we we want to be doing that we'll learn from. So. Well, Sal, this is an amazing conversation. We went long. Uh, we tried to short. We tried. We tried to speed it up, but it just didn't want to happen. It was too good of a conversation. So, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute blast. Thanks so much for having me on, folks. Really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. Talk right. to you later. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks for for tuning in to another episode of the Modern People Leader. We we really really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five star rating. It would mean the world to us. And connect with us on LinkedIn. We wanna we wanna know what you think about the show. And uh, yeah, you can you can find links to both of our profiles in the show notes. So thanks again for listening, and and see you on the next episode.